Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. We're settling in here on a Friday morning, Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Bespris. I have successfully, we, it's a team effort over here, have successfully dropped our children off at their respective schools. I have returned home, walked the dog, eaten the leftover scraps from breakfasts that my children only partially consumed. I'm filled with the robust energy of the crusts of sun butter and jelly sandwiches. And I'm ready to talk to everybody about fantasy basketball. Hope you guys are doing fine. That's the best we can ask for these days. Thank you to everyone for the birthday wishes yesterday. 40. Ugh. Gross. But I guess, you know, I'm here. I made it. 40. Nuggets won game one of the finals. It did not go over the posted total. So we had that one way off. 197 points. In fact, pace of that game was pretty damn slow. But one thing that definitely influenced the pace was that Miami could not get to the free throw line to save their damn lives. Only eight fouls called on Denver in the entire basketball game. And to be fair, there are really only like two guys for Miami that took the ball to the rim and they didn't get free throws. The only free throws came to Haywood Highsmith. He went two for two. But Jimmy Butler, none. Adebayo, none. Beyond those guys, you don't expect many. Dave Vincent is a lot of three-pointers, Lowry three-pointers, Caleb Martin typically threes and long twos. Duncan Robinson was bad. Max Struess was epically bad in this game. So uh, that hurt. But, you know, overall, and don't worry, we're going to get to the fantasy stuff in just a little bit. We're doing a uh, team breakdown today. We're on to the Atlanta Hawks, which is, what What team under are we on right now? One, two, three, four, five... 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. Oh, we've cracked into the second half of them. Atlanta will be the 16th team review, which again, I think we started doing these like a full month, maybe even longer ago. I like that. That means that we might be able to stretch these bad boys all the way out to free agency. And then you're like, there's a little bit of a of a dog days thing for basketball offseason potting after free agency because there's not much the rest of July. That's where we got to dig deep into the box of whatever is. We'll do some mailbag shows too, try to squeeze things along. I suppose we should also try to be done with the team reviews before free agency because then things are going to change substantially. Try to get some of our uh, draft folks on the pod, but you know maybe I ought to play a little catch-up here. Anyway, we'll talk Atlanta Hawks in a couple of minutes. First, I do want to talk about the playoffs because the question going into Game 1 was in terms of fading the team coming off a seven-game series, would Miami be able to keep this game within nine points? And it sort of bounced back and forth. They were down by uh, high teens for a while. They got it down to whatever it was, like 8, 9, something right around the number, and then Denver ended up winning by 11. So again, it did come down to basically, will Miami hit a meaningless three-pointer at the buzzer? They didn't. But I I leaned in the direction of the over, figuring that Denver would want to push the pace here against a Miami team coming off a long series, and they just sort of didn't do it. So missed that handicap. Game one overs don't work every single time. They work often, 
and they work even more often when one of the two teams is uh, pooped because they don't usually have the, the sort of intensity to dig in on defense. But as it turned out here, Denver didn't, didn't run it. Miami did a good job trying to get back, keep the transition baskets from happening regularly. Uh, and it turned it into a little bit more of a, of a grinded out kind of ball game. So what does that do to everything else we talked about? Well, we mentioned that Denver had a huge advantage on the rest side going into game one. So I figured they would win the game. I didn't know if they were going to win it by nine. As it turned out, they did. Barely, but they did. Uh, I thought it would go over. It didn't. So game two opened up with Denver as a 10-point favorite, and it's dropped quickly down to eight. Total opened at 216. That has dropped quickly to 214, and it's actually kind of inched back up a little bit uh, since then. So the question's now going into game two, if you're uh, just a casual basketball fan or a better, what might look different in game two? Well, for one, Miami kind of played their guys like this game was, I don't want to say the giveaway game, because they thought maybe they could snatch one, but a little bit of the giveaway game. No one on Miami hit 40 minutes. Adebayo got the closest. He was at 39 minutes and 58 seconds, which I get it, hair splitting on a one. But Jimmy Butler was only at 38. That's pretty low for their main guys. While over on the Denver side, a hyper-rested Nuggets team played Jamal Murray 44 out of the 48 minutes in a game where they were largely up double digits. Jokic was at 40 and a half. They got him a little bit of extra rest uh, in the first half because they were able to maintain. I think they were. he left the game when they were up by nine and he came back in when they were up by eight or something like that. So they just sort of like stretched the Jokic, Jokic rest a little bit longer. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. played 43 minutes in this game. And I should say they only won by 11 despite outshooting Miami by 10% and taking 18 more free throws than the Heat. When you looked at... If I didn't see the final score, and I just saw the discrepancy in field goal percent and free throw count, I would have assumed that Denver won this game by 15 to 20 points. The fact that it was only 11, which I know was kind of weird to say, because 11 is a, a relatively comfortable win, was, I thought, reason for Miami to have maybe a tiny bit more optimism than I had about them going into the series. As you recall, yesterday I said, I think Denver wins this series, and I'd I think this is, the, this is the opponent where Miami finally plays against someone playing serious basketball. Because Boston wasn't playing serious basketball. I know they took that series to seven games. Boston did that with just sheer overwhelming talent. But they just didn't play serious basketball pretty much throughout the playoffs. Milwaukee never woke up. They didn't play serious basketball. The Knicks are, like, they, they tried their best, but they didn't have the talent there. When Miami's taking on teams that are similar in talent to themselves... They've spanked them. Then they've been able to overwhelm teams that have more talent by just playing, I'll use the expression again, more serious basketball. What the hell do I mean by that? Just a team that knows what it is successful doing and does it for as close to 48 minutes as possible. And it, it feels so simple, but it's not. Because basketball is a heated game of adrenaline, of hypercharged mega-athletes, where it's very easy to lose the thread on what you're supposed to be doing. I thought that 
the four teams in these playoffs that have done the best job of holding on to the thread of who they are have been Denver, easily number one, Miami, easily one, one B in that department. And then I actually thought the Lakers and the Warriors were probably the third and fourth most, again, serious basketball teams in these playoffs. The Warriors, because they know what they're successful with, and they just they don't go away from it. And that's how they were as competitive and, and as they were against the Lakers team that, frankly, should have won that series. And they did. Because the Warriors had Steph, and they got almost nothing else throughout basically that entire series. They had like one Andrew Wiggins game, and that was about it. But they everything they did was built off of Steph, and they did it every single time down the floor. And damn it, it almost got them through that series. The Lakers knew what they were. They played downhill. They went at the bucket almost every single time. And then every once in a while, LeBron would take an ill-advised pull-up three. But, you know, he's one of the greatest basketball players in the history of the NBA. So if you're the Lakers, you're like, all right, I just sort of eat this every once in a while. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Ooh, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. And then the Nuggets and the Heat, who are here in the finals. Obviously. You don't get this far without playing serious basketball. So, I thought both of the teams did kind of what you expected them to do. And then on the Denver side, it just worked better. Because Jimmy Butler didn't have that great of a shooting game. Adebayo was able to use his athleticism in a way, frankly, kind of similar to what Anthony Davis was trying to do on offense and did sometimes throughout this series. But Adebayo, not at all AD on defense. I know we're seeing these things flying around on Twitter about how, oh, can Bam show that he's the defensive player? No, zero steals, zero blocks. He just, he doesn't have the, he doesn't have the length to impact Nikola Jokic the way that or really a lot of these Nuggets guys, the way that Anthony Davis could. Everything that Denver did, everything the Warriors did, everything the Grizzlies did, was to try to avoid Anthony Davis in a way that none of these teams are treating anybody else that way. And to me, you know, when I look at this series, and the reason I felt pretty confident about Denver coming through it, and why, I know, again, like a Nikola Jokic minus 300 MVP ticket is not a particularly wise wager but like if you felt there's a 75% chance the team was going to win the series then that's the bet to make not now uh nuggets won game one um 
I don't know that there's an opportunity. I mean, if, if Miami can steal one, then, then that's your chance. But then I don't know if you're going to want to do it anymore. The reason to have a little bit of optimism on the Miami side is that you shot terribly and you only lost by 11. Could they somehow even out the field goal percent a little bit? But that's kind of the optical illusion with Denver, that you're ever going to maybe catch them in offensive efficiency. You're not going to. Could you catch them for one game? Yeah, maybe. But can you catch them over a long series? I strongly doubt it. Denver hadn't even really figured out what they want to do defensively with the Heat yet. And they still basically coasted through this game. You want the evidence that Denver coasted? Nikola Jokic took 12 shots. He didn't even get himself all that involved. You know, we all we know that there's that Jokic other gear when he really badly needs it. He didn't need it. Jamal Murray's been amazing. I still think that he's getting not even close to the credit that he deserves in these playoffs. Jokic, not to say that Denver's not, because that's this ridiculous harebrained notion that like, oh, nobody respects the Nuggets. No, we all, dude, they've been the favorite. <laughs> that's that's wrong. But between the players on Denver, who was it? Ah, Someone, I heard an audio clip of somebody trying to claim that Michael Porter Jr. was Denver's second best player. Eh, guys, let's not make stories where there aren't stories. Jamal Murray is has been terrific in the postseason again. But that's not the point. We're getting off topic. The Nuggets have more, far more in the tank than we saw in this ballgame. And we've seen them make proper adjustments and stick to what works. We've seen the Heat continue to stick to what works. They lost those games to the Celtics. They lost games 5 and 6 to Boston because the Celtics just got wildly hot from three-point land. They lost game... Sorry, that was 4 and 5, I should say. They lost game 6 to the Celtics because Miami could not hit a two-pointer to save their lives. That's not that crazy. They need to be able to attack the rim a little bit better than they did. In this one. I mean, that's that's what Miami is going to be talking about. We got to get something going to the bucket because Denver is not like a, the world beater defensively. They've been decent in these playoffs. Don't take anything away from the Nuggets. But Nikola Jokic is not what you'd call a traditional rim protector. He's just a big dude back there that wants to avoid fouling people. And Miami's got to find a way to get him to commit a couple of fouls. But their identity is they got two guys that go towards the rim and then like 13 that don't. Can Miami make these games competitive? Yeah. But it sure feels a lot like the Lakers series where Denver can just sort of keep you at bay just enough. Close ball game, close ball game, close ball game, Denver wins it. But what about this spread on game two? You've got to figure that now the rest advantage starts to level off a little bit. Can the Heat come out and just play better from the outset? I think the answer is probably yes. Game two, to me, feels like one that could just be a little bit closer throughout, even if I think the Nuggets ultimately do win it. So I would lean, and this game is not for two more days, but it's uh, it's the Friday show, so we got to cover anything over the weekend. It's a Sunday evening game. Um, I think I kind of like the Heat catching a whole bunch of points. I think it's at eight, if you maybe can get that. You think it'll bet back up to eight and a half or nine? Uh, doubt it maybe eight and a half don't think it comes down any farther but if you can get eight and a half or nine that's probably where i would lean in that one 
Uh, I'll admit I have no idea what's going on with the total. I, I thought this first game, Nuggets would be able to get out and run a little bit more. You can see the Heat were able to focus hard on slowing down any transition stuff. I do wonder if the Nuggets find a way to get out in transition a tiny bit more. I saw, at least early in this game, Jokic wasn't the main rebounder early in the contest. In fact, Michael Porter Jr. led the team in boards with 13 because Miami was trying to pull Jokic away from the rim a little bit. Not to necessarily open things up because of his defense, but just to space the floor. That's something the Heat can do that the Lakers didn't. So does that change things a little bit? Does that make it a little harder for Denver to get out in transition? We'll see uh, after Game 2. But again, I, I don't think I have a great feel for the total in Game 2. 214.5 feels like a, a number that they could clear, but the pace would have to pick up pretty considerably. So I think I'd prefer the Heat if I'm looking at anything in that ball game. And uh, we'll cover that again on Monday when we loop back around on the other side. Team du jour is the Atlanta Hawks today. The Atlanta Hawks today. Uh, and we'll tell you all about them after we remind you guys of our buddies over at Manscaped.com. Coupon code ETHOS20. Ethos, E-T-H-O-S, the numbers two zero. Ethos 20 gets you 20% off and free shipping on your Father's Day gift at manscaped.com. You've got 15 days. No, 16 days? What the hell day is that? Is that June 18th? June 18th. You got 16 days from the day I'm recording this show, although maybe some of you are listening to it 17 days away. Uh, 15 days away. Dan can count. Can he? Unclear right now. The Performance Package 4.0, the Lawnmower 4.0, Boxers, the Weed Whacker, and my new favorite, the Beard Hedger. You know what's actually the nice thing about the Beard Hedger? It doesn't have a genitalia-themed name. I can talk about it all day, and I don't have to cover the fact that every joke at Manscaped is about balls. This is a classy program. This is a family show, for goodness sake. <laughs> um, it, it was time. It was long overdue. Manscaped heard your calls, your clarion call, for something to actually trim beards by very small increments, and they have done it. They've made another amazing trimmer, and this time it's a beard hedger. Half-millimeter adjustments on the beard hedger from 0.5 mils up to 10. Finally, you can get that beard length the exact length you want it at any part in your face. I know for me, when I'm shaving my chin, the hairs on my chin tend to grow a little bit thicker, and I actually have to bring them down a tiny bit more. With the previous iteration, with the Lawnmower 4.0 and the 3 and 6 millimeter attachments, I had to do 6 millimeters on all of my face and then 3 for just like a couple of corners of my chin, and it was hard to get that to look right without like an obvious length differential. But now, I can go 6 mils all the way around, and I can go 5, 5.5 if I want right around the chin, 4.5 if I feel like I want to take off just a little bit more. This is it, guys. This is the beard hedger to end all beard hedgers. You won't have to get another one for a freaking decade. That's the nice thing about Manscaped. Their stuff just lasts forever because it's waterproof, because they use awesome, awesome pieces, materials. It's just better. They make a better hair trimming product, no matter which one you like. 
than the competition. So check them out now at manscaped.com, promo code ethos20. Grab something before Father's Day. And guess what? If you guys do that, you're going to basically lock in that we get to continue hanging out with Manscaped for next season of the NBA. So you're doing it for yourself. You're doing it for Fantasy NBA Today. And you're doing it for the father figure in your life to clean up their damn dirty hair. The Atlanta Hawks. So they changed coaches midseason. And not much else actually changed for Atlanta. They couldn't get out of the play-in tournament. Almost did. Almost did. Remember, they were leading the Heat with what? No, that wasn't right. How the hell did that go? Hawks beat somebody, didn't they? The Hawks make the playoffs? Yeah, they made the playoffs. Come on, Dan. Get it together. Hawks made the playoffs, and then they got uh, steamrolled, basically, um, by the Celtics. Boston, again, on serious basketball. They were just beating up on Atlanta, and they were like, meh, we'll just see what happens. And then the Hawks won whatever it was, one game, two games. Doesn't matter. I don't even remember anymore. Unserious basketball. But what does this mean for Atlanta going forward? Because we've now kind of seen the Hawks. They were 41-41 and 41 this year. They were 43-39 and 39 last year. They were 41-31 and 31 in the 72-game, uh, like, mid-COVID season, not early COVID. And that was the year where it was like, oh, maybe there's something here. I think that was the Nate McMillan switchover season. But it's been a steady decline since that kind of surprising 41-31 and 31 year. And for Trey Young, that was a big kind of he-woke-up season, but he hasn't really been able to duplicate that. Can the Hawks actually get over the hump with Trey Young as their focal point? You could almost ask a similar question about the Mavericks, although, you know, we've seen Dallas, like Dallas was 52-30, and 30 last year with Luka and Jalen Brunson and Mavs were 42 and 30 in the 72 game season. So, you know, I think Luka has answered those questions a little bit better. So that leaves Trey now as, okay, well, is this a player that can lead us not only into the playoffs because he's gotten them there sort of, but through some of them. From a fantasy standpoint, Trey Young's upside is pretty much baked into his durability. He's generally a durable dude, and that's good. He plays through little nagging injuries. He played 73 out of 82 games again this year. He's been uh, largely healthy. I know he he burned one of my teams, and I've told this story far too many times considering how inconsequential it is in, in the grand scheme of life. Uh, but in his career so far, he's missed one game. Uh, like a dozen games in the COVID year. That's a tough one. You can't really blame stuff on anybody. Nine in the 72-game season. Six, that's it, last year. And then nine again this year. And that's better than league average in all but, I think, one of those seasons. That's good. But from a per-game standpoint, he's generally underperformed with the... Uh, exception of, I guess you could say last year, because he shot 46% from the field, 38% from downtown, 90.4 at the free throw line. And I think the hope for a lot of us, I didn't, I had Trey Young in precisely zero nine category leagues this season. The hope for a lot of us that I was unwilling to buy into 
was, oh, that 46%, that's going to stick. Because the Hawks brought in DeJounte Murray, so Trey Young's opportunities should be easier. And even if you take the ball out of his hands a little bit, uh, the efficiency should at least hang on. So small drop-off was the hope. And instead, he dropped all the way back where he was before the efficiency spike of last season. He shot 42.9%, was actually lower than his career mark. His three-point field goal percent was the lowest since his rookie season at 33.5. His free throw number was still very good, but did come back down two percentage points. His rebounding was lower by almost a full rebound. You can probably blame that on DeJounte Murray. His assists actually were a career high by a half of an assist. And his steals tied his career high. So you're looking at it like, well, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is that his usage was indeed a little bit down, not by a ton, but a little bit. And a little goes a long way for a player whose value is heavily baked into every little squeezy drop of usage you can get out of him. The more Trey Young does, the more Trey Young has value. If he loses a little bit of usage, points per game goes down, threes per game goes down, field goal per game typically goes down, although it actually was back up this year because the NBA was like, ah, enough of the cracking down on stupid foul shot stuff and you know, the usual guys got their usual free throws again. Um, rebounds, those going down sort of counterbalance the assist stuff. And again, I know it wasn't a big usage drop-off, but that hurt. And the other thing that hurt was that it seems like maybe last year was the anomaly in the field goal percent department. He really hasn't been anywhere near 46% any other season. 43.8 was his previous high, and I get it. That's only two percentage points, but, I mean, we've seen what we've seen what we've seen at this point now. So, Trey Young, because his turnovers are stupid high, is probably going to get overdrafted in nine-category leagues because in eight-cat, his value does jump forward. In points leagues, his value is... Pretty similar to 8-cat, because the the negative you get out of field goal is counterbalanced by almost the exact same positive in free throw. But again, if you roll points leagues and 8-cat together, he'll go earlier than 9-cat, where uh, turnovers is the thing that hurts him the most. And sure, if you want to make sure you've got your assists locked down early, he's a great guy to do it. But he's going to get drafted probably in the second round when his per-game output this year was 49. He just wasn't even close. But he did play in 73 ball games, and so there is a certain value in that. However, there's no way. Trey Young's never going to get underdrafted. It's just not going to happen. If he gets drafted in the second round, the best-case scenario for him is like mid-second round per game. So there's just no, there's no upside built into it. And if you're drafting Trey... You're doing it because you have a particular build in mind, and I still frankly think you could probably get somebody better where he's going to end up going. What about the rest of the Hawks? And frankly, what about what if Trey Young gets moved? That's still a possibility. Uh, we're not going to handicap the team right now with that in mind. Obviously, that would change things dramatically. You'd also get a big name something coming back in a Trey Young trade. So uh, there's really no sense in, in breaking that down right now. So let's look at some of the other players on the Hawks that had value or close to value starting at the top. 
DeJounte Murray, number 36 on a per-game basis, 74 out of 82 games, so also a totals uh, positive. Of course, I just lost where he was in the totals board. You know, the only thing about Basketball Monster that's super annoying is how often you have to make sure you refresh the stupid page. Uh, totals for DeJounte was number 24, which is basically where he went, so he kind of hit his ADP by totals. Trey Young totals was 32, so he still missed his mark there. But certainly on a per-game basis, I think everybody was hoping for more from DeJounte. Prior to the trade to Atlanta, very early in fantasy draft season, his ADP was in the first round. That was when he was still with San Antonio. After the trade, his ADP dropped to about 30, and I think most folks are like, yeah, this feels a little bit low, but by how much? And then he bounced back up to like 17, and he really just... He rubber-banded back and forth for a while until it settled right around 20 to 22, which ended up being too high. And he was a perfect case study in me getting, letting myself get talked into a player. This happens to me with one player every damn year. And every damn year I say I'm not going to let it happen next time. And then every damn year I let it happen next time. And this year it was DeJounte Murray, who... I was going to just sort of dodge because I was like, this dude's going to take a hit and I don't know exactly how much it's going to be. His steals were down. His rebounds were down. His assists were down. Um, the other stuff was not all that far off where he was in San Antonio, but you just knew he went from a place where literally nobody else would take the ball out of his hands to a place where he was going to play with Trey Young. And I mean, that's a guy who's going to be top of the league in usage every year. And you can say, oh, there's plenty during a ball game for both of those guys, but it just doesn't work that way. Someone's going to take primary control when you get sort of two of these types of players together, and you kind of had to assume it was going to be Trey. And then, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the Cavaliers, and we'll talk about them. It was hard to know, like, because Darius Garland was there already. Was he going to be the guy to take control, or was it going to be Donovan Mitchell? And it was... And it was Donovan that came in and was like, okay, I'm, I'm the captain now. Yes, I captained Phillips dead. So what about DeJounte Murray next year? Uh, I think there's a chance that he gets drafted towards the middle of the third round. And frankly, I'd be okay with that. Because I think there's also a non-zero chance his steals come back up a little bit. Maybe not all the way to two, but they were at 1.5. Maybe you get him to 1.7. Maybe the field goal percent goes from 46 to 47 could he get it to 47 and a half, 48? Eh, probably not. But those little things that could just pivot ever so slightly in his favor could get him from 36 per game to, you know, around 30. And then on a team that's been pretty consistently around the fringe, this is a club where they're going to need their main guys to play if they want to avoid the play-in tournament and try to get into a safer Eastern Conference playoff seed. Uh, so you got to figure that a lot of the games are going to be consequential for them. That's not to say that I think DeJounte Murray is going to be a fantasy draft a value next year. I think he has the chance to be like one of those kind of old men grouping type guy. I know he's not an old man. That, that, that It needs a new name. That 25 through 50 range where a lot of the sort of boring stuff falls. DeJounte Murray might actually fall into the boring group next year. We'll see. John Collins. I definitely had no John Collinses this year. I wanted nothing to do with that dude knowing that DeJounte Murray was going to come to town and be a strong rebounding big guard 
who also was going to take now this sort of second mantle that, I don't know if you thought John Collins had that before, but uh, his role dried up. And then the Hawks traded for Sadiq Bey. That pushed him for minutes. DeAndre Hunter came into the season healthy. That was always going to push that power forward spot for minutes. And you had two centers on the club, so there's no real wiggle room for Collins to get in at the five unless one of those other guys was hurt. I don't think there's really anywhere for John Collins to go unless Atlanta moves somebody, and that somebody would probably have to be Clint Capella, who is going to be incredibly difficult to move. I think he still has two or three years left on his contract. We can pull that up while we're talking about it right now. In fact, I probably should have had this window open before I started the show. Dumb, dumb Dano. Two more years for Capella, next year the year after that. John Collins has two more and a player option. Trey Young's got three and a player option. Bogdanovich has three. Murray, this is actually his free agent year, so you know he's a threat to be traded. DeAndre Hunter's got four more years. Hawks are pretty well tied into the guys they've got right now. So, again, trades, possibilities. Someone would be interested in Trey Young if they put him on the block. I'm sure somebody would be interested in DeJounte Murray if they put him on the block. As an expiring, there is a certain value in that, but at the same time, anybody that wants Murray would presumably want to then re-sign him afterwards, so it's a little bit different. But then Capella, I mean, we're talking 43 mil over two seasons. That's a hard contract to move. So then that brings us into the front corks. I don't think I want anything to do with John Collins. I think he probably still gets drafted too early this coming year. Clint Capella, Onyika Okongwu, both extremely interesting. Capella was number 41 on a per-game basis this year in only 26 and a half minutes per game. Okongwu was number 75 this year in 23 minutes per game. And you're like, Dan, those add up to closer to 50 and not 48. Yeah, uh, well, Capella missed, like, what was it, two, three weeks in the middle of the season for something, and he had a couple of nagging injuries. Okongwu played 80 out of 82 ball games. by the way, also a really nice stat for him. But when he filled in for Capella... That was the real juicy stuff. That was the top 40, you know, whatever it was, two, three weeks. And the rest of the time, Okongwu kind of settled around that 85, 90, 95 range. Which, of course, means each of these guys is worth drafting. They are extraordinarily fantasy-friendly from a stat set perspective. Capella, a better rebounder. Okongwu, a better foul shooter. Defensive stats eerily similar in terms of what they do per minute on steals and blocks. Okongwu just a little bit better this year than Capella per minute, not by a ton. But what that also tells you is that even if the minutes pivot a little bit, even like it, let's say Capella drops from 26 and a half down to 25 and Okongwu moves up from 23 to 24 or 25. And again, I get it. That equals more than 48, but you figured each of those guys is going to miss some game this coming year, and that's where they'd get that little minutes bump. They can still post value inside the top 100. We know this because we can just look at their per-minute production. Okongwu only needs about 21 minutes to get inside the top 100. Capella only needs about 21, 22, 23 minutes to get inside the top 100. There's more than enough there, and the only way that that one implodes is if Quinn Snyder decides that John Collins at the five is the way to go. Because if you carve six or seven minutes out at center for Collins, then suddenly you're talking about Capella and Okongwu splitting, what, 40, 41, 42 minutes. 
that's not quite enough for both of them. It's probably enough for one, but probably not both. Still, I don't know where these guys are going to go. Capella got drafted like at 80 to 90 range last year, and Okongo got drafted outside the top 100. I'm not sure Capella gets drafted any earlier. I don't think people looked at his season and thought, that was pretty good. But it was. It was pretty good. And same thing with Okongwu. I don't know how many people looked at his season and thought, I got him. I got myself a pretty good fantasy season right now. I feel like the only people that felt that way were the ones that had him for the three weeks that Capella was hurt, right in the middle of the season. And they got those big, mondo, jumbo, juicy games out of Okongwu. And maybe a couple down the stretch. Remember, he had a few games where he got a couple extra minutes. But that's probably only like 10 to 20% of fantasy managers, if that. I think a lot of fantasy managers saw Okongwu's season, saw 10.7 boards, and thought, meh. But they're going to meh their way right past a really intriguing fantasy stat set. 0.7 steals, 1.3 blocks, 64% from the field, 78 at the foul line, only one turnover. Meanwhile, Capella, everybody wants to be down on Capella. Everybody wants to anoint Okongwu as the starter, but we still haven't seen it. And Clint was at 12-11 and 11 with 1.9 defensive stats and 65% from the field and somehow managed to get his free throw number up to 60 this year. I don't know if that sticks, but regardless, he was number 41. I think there's a very real chance that both Atlanta centers are draft day values next year, but we'll just have to wait and see where they actually go. And then you get into a little bit of the dregs. Bogdan Bogdanovich, can he actually have value on this team as long as both DeJounte Murray and Trey Young are healthy? Probably not. Sadiq Bey, as long as Collins and Hunter are healthy, probably not. So let's not waste our time with it. And let's go ahead and tie a beautiful little crimson bow. What the hell color are the Hawks? What are they technically? That's not crimson. It's some other red. Uh, let's, tie, let's tie a Hawks logo colored bow on this week of Fantasy NBA Today. Again, check out manscaped.com, promo code ethos20. Get your Father's Day gift over there now while you still got two weeks to have that bad boy delivered. It makes your life so easy. That's the best damn reason I can give you right now. Get your Father's Day gift at manscaped.com because it's just easy. You don't have to dig deep into Amazon's used dregs or Etsy or whatever it is that you're like, I got to figure something out for Father's Day, and then at the last minute you're getting a, a money clip Stop that. Don't do that. They don't need it. Just go to manscaped.com. Take care of it now. Super easy. Save yourself the time. Just get it done right now, today. Ethos 20. Oh, and by the way, as we're wrapping up here, Frank Vogel has just been hired as the new head coach of the Phoenix Suns. Oh, my goodness. Doop, 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 ba doop, doo. How about that? Frank Vogel, who was... Uh, unfairly blamed for why the Lakers were failing in the Russell Westbrook experiment. Gets another shot. Can't do the Suns. Do the Suns have what it takes to go get a title, to go play some defense, because that's what Vogel's going to be expecting out of them. Uh, this will be a fun new wrinkle. We talk about Phoenix at uh, some point, week or two down the line here. Good for Frank. That's fun. All right. No, but that's not, I mean, it's fun news, but it's not really big for the fantasy side. Let's all roll into the weekend. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a sports ethos, sportsethos.com presentation. I am Dan Bespris. I'll talk to you guys on social at Dan Bespris. 
Yes, the Iron Man streak broken this week, but we're at four now. Could it, could it get to five? Find out on Monday. All right, see you guys. We'll talk to you Monday. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.